On this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast, I talk about the man of many mysteries, Eugene Laurent. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 40. The Magic Detective Podcast is your home for all things magic history. And before we begin, I have a bit of news. This is actually news about the podcast. I was just informed that this podcast has been ranked among the top 20 magic podcasts by Feedspot.com. In fact, This podcast, The Magic Detective, is currently number four. And I know before uh, too long we can make it to number one. That's my goal. But I'm very grateful to see the podcast ranked so high. And I guess I really shouldn't be too surprised because the comments that I receive from everybody are always glowing comments. Those, of course, are from listeners. And, uh, and And I suppose that's because you all recognize the work that goes into each episode. Uh, I'm not just uh, bringing people on and asking questions like so many podcasts do. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Uh, I have to dig deep into books, periodicals, newspaper archives, Ask Alexander and other places to find out the information on the people that I'm talking about. So uh, there's quite a bit of work that goes into each podcast. And again, a big thank you to feedspot.com to uh, for well for letting me know and I'll post a link to their uh, magic podcast page uh, in the um, podcast information so so you'll have that today's feature Eugene Laurent first came to my attention years ago while I was going through the Tarbell course in magic and specifically volume number four in the pages of that book there's listed a version of the Chinese linking rings that was Laurent's version and I've seen countless versions of the rings, and I'm sure, you know, many of you have as well. But this one struck me on a lot of levels. For one, it was a very modern approach to the trick. Recently, I ran across the book Our Mysteries, and I discovered within its pages uh, was Eugene Laurent's Nest of Boxes routine. And this, too, really piqued my interest because I have a routine in my show that was uh, was a Jim Steinmeier routine that was he credited to Orson Welles, uh, a ring and bread routine, basically. And looking over Eugene Laurent's routine, I can see that this original routine is probably where the Orson Welles one came from, or at least was inspired by, um, just because of certain elements within the routine. And if I might add, both Laurent's ring routine and nest of boxes are great magic. So I had to uh, eventually dedicate a podcast to him, and here we are today. So who was Eugene Laurent? He was born Eugene Lawrence Greenleaf in Denver, Colorado, August 19th, 1875. It seems he had an interest in magic from a very young age, likely seeing magicians at dime museums and other 
places. He befriended a magician at one point who gave him lessons, and eventually Eugene ended up with the man's entire show when that man left to join a drama troupe while leaving numerous unpaid bills behind. Arrangements had been made that if Eugene paid the man's bills, all the props would be his. So Eugene Greenleaf became Eugene Greenleaf Boy Magician. It wasn't long before the boy magician had his theatrical debut at the Orpheum Theater in Denver, and it wasn't just a single show either. He played an entire week. His next stint through the uh, theatrical world would not be as a magician, though. It would be as a callboy at the Tabor Opera House in Denver. This was the busiest theatrical establishment in his area, and it allowed him to witness live theater on on a daily basis and get paid doing so. He would quickly rise from callboy all the way up to head usher. Now, according to the book Magic by David Price, one magician more than anyone inspired him, and that was Alexander Herman. The great Herman had appeared in Denver at the Tabor Grand Opera House on four different tours. The total number of performances witnessed by Eugene was 28. Imagine. Imagine seeing Herman the Great once, but let alone seeing him 28 times. Herman uh, the Great died in 1896, and by 1897, Eugene was working as a bookkeeper for a mining company. But it was obvious that he had magic on his mind and in his blood. He would soon meet several prominent magicians in 1898, Surveil Roy, Adelaide Herman, and one unknown, Howard Thurston. Well, he was unknown at the time. Thurston was actually in town to try and score some publicity with his rising card trick. Near the end of the year, a new magician emerged on the scene, and not as Eugene, the boy magician, because he was now 23 years old. Now he would alter his middle name Lawrence slightly to become Eugene Laurent. He was soon working the Orpheum circuit in 1899. He got married in the spring to Nella Robbins, who also had an act of her own. She did impressions, but not of famous people like we think of an impressionist today. She did impressions of things like a crying baby, a spoiled brat, an elderly spinster, and even did bird calls and was quite popular with it. Before long, Laurent was working with the Chautauqua and Lyceum bureaus and was quickly a sensation. And it's been pointed out that unlike many of his contemporaries in the Lyceum circuit, Laurent was actually able to play in both legitimate theaters as well as many of these tent shows and more. His abilities as a showman were far superior to many. In fact, review after review from magic periodicals of the time point out the artistic approach that Laurent had to performing and an examination of some of his routines proves he was not just a standard magician of the time, but he really put a lot of effort into making his magic something special. A case in point was his linking ring routine that I mentioned earlier. It's captured in Tarbell number four, and it's truly a lesson in magic, psychology, and showmanship. He begins by showing this broken ring, demonstrating the sound a broken ring makes when struck against a solid ring. The hollow clang was unmistakable and he would toss it away, and then he would begin to do his routine with all the other rings. It's genius. 
the result left audiences spellbound. His closer in the early days, when he was doing only an hour's performance, was usually the drum that can't be beat. This was a production effect where small flags would be produced, and as the routine progressed, he would produce larger and larger flags. The conclusion of the effect was the production of an American flag that filled the stage, though he also carried a Union Jack flag for performances in Canada. He also presented the flags of all nations, which was similar in many ways as uh, it still had a production of flags. But in the case of the flags of all nations, those flags were on a flagstaff and connected together at the bottom to make a beautiful fan-like display of flags. The only drawback to the flags of all nations was that many magicians working in Chautauqua and Lyceum were doing it, among them Morrow, Germain, Brush, and others. Eventually, Laurent would find a closer that was uniquely his own, which I'll talk about a little bit later. It appears that his friends called him Gene rather than Eugene. There are many notations to this in magic periodicals, and though many articles I read on Laurent say he was a huge success with children, his magic was actually geared towards adults. He was able to cater easily to both audiences at once, though not doing what might be coined a kid show by any stretch. Now, if we look at the lineup of his show, there are clear routines designed specifically for children, but they do not make up the bulk of the show. One such routine, a candle, glass tube, necklace, and rabbit, was a crazy routine, and he he used it to bring up children from the audience. He had another routine called Candy and Balloons, which I read the description, and quite frankly, I can't wrap my head around it, but it uh, I guess it worked for him. It sounded... Uh, It didn't make any sense reading it. It was part magic, part contest, part, uh, I don't know, but spectacle, I guess you'd say. But it was very popular in his shows. In 1906, he got his biggest showbiz break when he signed with the Red Path Lyceum Circuit. They would keep him employed for more than 20 years. One thing I found inspiring about Laurent was the size of his show that he brought to town. He was bringing a show that was really bigger than the venue allowed. Granted, some of the magic in the show was smaller, but he also included illusions, as well as his own curtains, his own scenery. In modern day terms, we would call this production value, and Laurent excelled in this. But whereas some performers need this production value to make up for a weakness in their shows, Laurent had no weaknesses. His magic was a combination of old school and modern. And the old school material, uh, these would be popular tricks that could be found in the repertoire of performers for the last hundred years, but were still good solid magic. Laurent had these in his show, but with everything, they had the Laurent stamp on them. In other words, he really thought about his magic and worked hard to make it as strong as possible. He wasn't changing it for change's sake. No, he wanted it to be the best that it could be. And there was a strong emphasis, by the way, on laughter in the show. But not wisecrack laughter, as one article put it, but rather uh, much of it was based on situational comedy. And at a Laurent show, you could expect laughter throughout almost the entire show. There is an effect that is singled out in many articles from Magic Magazines as well as newspaper articles, and that trick is the sand trick. We would know it today by the sands of 
Desert or Sands of Time, lots of different names. But it is the effect where you have three bowls of dry sand, each bowl containing uh, a sand of a different color. One at a time, uh, a handful of sand is dropped into a very large bowl of water. After all the colors go in, an audience member is asked to name a color and the magician reaches inside and extracts whatever color that was completely dry. Uh, and at the end, in, La in Laurent's version, at the end, the bowl is shown to contain only water. All the sand is gone. Now, here's a bit of trivia. Laurent had worked up a special version of the sand trick for Houdini to use in his 1927 tour. But, of course, Houdini sadly died in October of 1926 and never got to use the sand trick. So popular was Laurent's version that... It's written up in the book, Greater Magic. I talked about how Laurent would close his show with the flags of all nations or the drum that can't be beat. Well, there was another effect that would eventually take their place, and it was an illusion, and it cost Laurent $500 to have made. One source I read said it cost $1,000. It was the first large-scale illusion he ever presented, and he even had full-color lithographs made to promote the effect. It was called The Witch of the Flame. The illusion was Laurent's design. It was built by that magical genius, Josephi. And the name of the effect was credited to Mrs. Nella Laurent, his wife and chief assistant in the routine. From the June 1902 edition of the Sphinx magazine, we discover this. The casket used in the illusion is a gorgeous one and is constructed so as to stand the severest inspection. It is completely bound with brass, highly nickel-plated, upholstered in white satin, while elegant, heavily nickel-plated handles ornament the ends. Two plate-glass windows serve to allow the audience to see that the person really is inside the casket. The casket itself rests upon nickel-plated trestles, which raises it approximately 22 inches from the floor, allowing the audience to see at all times underneath and about it. The casket is never covered. This is a new idea for the time, yet upon the instant the victim is placed inside, two swords are pushed directly into the casket through an opening that's for that purpose. Immediately, screams and groans are heard, and upon removing the swords and throwing open the lid, to the amazement of all, the entire casket is ablaze, flames pouring ten feet high. Three times the casket is opened, and three times the flames pour forth. The fourth time, as Professor Laurent opens it, he is amazed to find that he is face to face with Satan himself. After a short struggle, Satan vanished into the casket, and when the magician, grasping a lighted torch, again deliberately opens the casket to set fire to it, at this tragic point the audience is startled to hear a gentleman in their midst shouting to put out the fire and not burn up the casket. As the gentleman mounts the stage, he is, well, he is at once recognized as Professor Laurent, and upon throwing off a robe and a mask, the audience is surprised to see that Mrs. Laurent is the Witch of the Flame, standing beside the casket. A large number of prominent managers have, upon seeing Professor Laurent produce this original and striking illusion, immediately booked him for some very flattering engagements 
It has already created no end of talk, and we predict a great success for Professor Laurent, which he well deserves. The story built into the effect was based on an old outlawed Hindu custom of burning the widow. So in the Laurent illusion, it began with him telling the story of a princess played by his wife Nella, and he explained this old custom, and they began to act out the story. Laurent was to play the part of a wizard who was in the story to help out the princess. This is quite different from the $10,000 two-minute illusions of the 21st century. Reading it, it adds a layer upon layer of theatricality. And I can't help but wonder if we maybe should be taking a page from the past and apply it to today. Just a thought. Years later, Laurent sold The Witch of the Flame to Von Arcs, the illusionist. In 1908, Laurent was booked to play Bridgetown, New Jersey. He had received an unusual note from a fellow magician, Edward Morrow. The note said, Please leave something for me. I'm featuring my flags and ribbon trick. Can you eliminate anything like this without hurting your program? Now, the reason for this letter, it just so happens the two magicians would be appearing at the same theater one week apart. Laurent arrived first, and he removed his Flags of All Nations from his program. He left a note for Morrow, along with a copy of his program. Morrow arrived a week later, but was unable to perform. To find out why, please listen to podcast number 11 on the life of Edward Morrow. On November 19, 1910, tragedy struck Eugene Laurent when his 34-year-old wife, Nella, suddenly died. The two had just purchased a home in Chicago and had finished setting it up when suddenly she passed away. She was his companion for 11 years of marriage. She was his performing partner and really was the most important thing in his life. This must have been a terribly difficult time. It would be a full 10 years before Eugene Laurent married again. In June of 1920, he married Greta Barnes, who was then a performer in his show. She was the pianist, but would eventually fill in doing the illusions that had previously been done by Nella. Another effect from Laurent's show that really piques my interest is his chapography act. Apparently, his entire act is taught in the pages of the book, the Magic Hat, which came out in 1918, though I've not been able to track that down. However, the book Laurent, The Man of Many Mysteries by Gabe from Potter Auctions does give some details. It contains the opening lines from his routine, which I'll share with you now. I'm pretty sure these came from that Magic Hat book. Some years ago in Paris, there lived a clever thief whose bold and daring escapades were quite beyond belief. Though all the great detectives were put upon his trail, their never-ceasing vigilance long proved to no avail. At night, upon the crowded streets, he plied his dangerous trade. And yet, though spies were all about, a safe escape he made. Naturally, as the story continues, Laurent used the chapography circle to make a hat and portray various characters that were encountered. But what's so amazing about this is the whole chapography act actually ends with an illusion. So it's almost as if chapography was used to sell this particular illusion. And the one I'm speaking of is Strobica, 
in which a person is strapped to a board uh, by their hands and their neck and their, their legs, and somehow they are able to escape. In the course of the Chipography Act, Laurent plays the part of the thief in the story and is strapped to a board, and yet, at the conclusion, he escapes into the night. It's brilliant. Some of the other illusions that Laurent featured over the years include the glass-lined trunk, the modern cabinet, and Survey Leroy's Azra illusion. The 1900s through 1919 was a booming time for entertainers. There was vaudeville, there were the Chautauqua circuits and the Lyceum bureaus, there were theaters, and much, much more. But something came along that would bring an end to it all, and that would be film moving pictures. At first a mere novelty, eventually it began to grow. It could be found in both big city USA and even in small rural towns. Its presence was felt as the gigs began to dry up and the salaries and money for expenses began to dry up. And it just didn't affect the vaudevillians or those in legitimate theater. It affected all the performers. Eugene Laurent was forced to shrink his show. No longer could he travel with five or six people in the cast. Now he was relegated to two. He had to scale down to make things more affordable. Somehow he stayed afloat in the 1920s. And it's not without a lot of effort and a lot of fighting with Redpath. But as he neared the Great Depression, the writing was on the wall clearer than ever. Eugene did what everyone hoped to do, but few were able. He switched markets. This time he would take on school assemblies as his bread and butter. This meant a smaller show for the most part, but Eugene Laurent had years and years of polished material that would be ideal for these venues. Not only that, he knew how to appeal to children. His shows were a huge success, and he still featured illusions when he was able. One in particular was invented by Fred Culpit, The Doll's House. Laurent continued in the school assembly market into the 1940s. In 1942, on a day in which he had four assemblies scheduled, he suffered a heart attack. But he eventually recovered and returned to the road. Then, in 1944, while preparing to head out for another show, he suffered a second heart attack. This time, he died. He was cremated and his ashes were placed in a mausoleum in the Rose Hill Cemetery in Chicago. The services were conducted by fellow magician and clergyman John Booth. Now, I mentioned earlier that Laurent was inspired to become a professional magician by seeing Herman the Great, and it just so happens that Will Rock was inspired to become a magician by seeing Laurent. And not only Will Rock, but another someone you may have heard of, William Larson Sr. Here's what William Larson Sr. had to say in the pages of Genie, March 1941. He writes, In Eugene Laurent, I can visualize the dash and humor of Alexander Herman, plus the magician-like appearance. I can see the caution and fastidiousness of Keller, the grace of a Powell, the inventiveness of a Devant, and the very boldness of admitted charlatan Cagliostro. He also said, The program of magic that I saw Eugene Laurent present in the year 1923 did more to influence my life in magic than has any other single performance. And one other person of note 
credits Laurent for inspiring him to become a magician and in later years would become friends and competitors. That was McDonald Birch. And that, my friends, is the life of Eugene Lawrence Greenleaf, better known as Laurent, the Man of Mysteries. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If so, please remember to like and share and subscribe, if you can. If you listen to the podcast on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts, please consider giving me a five-star rating, as that helps tremendously with the SEO rating, and uh, that means more people will be eventually able to locate the podcast if they're searching for such a thing. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well and stay safe. Oh, and happy holidays and have a happy new year. I'll see you in 2020.